I want to invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Uh, you can see it in your Bible, uh, on the Bibles provided, if you turn to page 991. Or you can look at your program, and that verse is printed out there for you. Friends, there is something in the air of our world, a type of fog that makes it hard to see. It makes it hard to know what to believe. And it leaves you wondering, can I really trust anything? Or is the best that I can do is sort of straddle the fence and be afraid to land on one side or another? In that searching, this evening and on Sunday, we will look at what the Bible labels as trustworthy statements. And tonight's comes from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. It goes like this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. There are certain verses in the Bible that are like Jolly Ranchers candy. I don't know if you've ever had one of those before. There is a right way and there is a wrong way to eat a Jolly Rancher. If you unwrap this hard, sticky, factory-manufactured delight and you decide to just chop down on it, you will need to make an emergency call to your dentist. The right way to eat a Jolly Rancher is to let it sit. It has to melt slowly. Its flavor then will stick with you. It will even leave a noticeable impression on you. You can always tell when you're talking to someone who has just eaten a Jolly Rancher. I want to approach 1 Timothy 1.15 sort of like a Jolly Rancher. I want to let this verse sit and let it melt for its flavor to stay with you and for it to leave a noticeable impression on you. So I want to simply walk through this verse one part at a time. So it will help you to keep it in front of you our entire time together. So 1 Timothy 1.15, just look at the first two words. They're simply the saying. Now the Apostle Paul hasn't arrived to the main thing he's going to say. He leads up to it. He introduces it. He hypes it up. He builds the drama. He begins by labeling the thing he is about to say. He labels it as a saying or as a statement. What Paul's doing for us here is he's flagging that what I'm about to say is a well-established, often repeated, highly important statement. This is a truth that is distilled into one bite-sized saying for you and me. Now, I think this is a tremendous gift to us. If you are holding a Bible in your lap, even a Bible that looks like this, you might notice that this book is very long. I know that in astute observation, you might be very impressed. You might be surprised that besides being a pastor, I do side work as a private investigator. But seriously, though, this book is really long. If you're looking at 1 Timothy 1, you are on page 991 of a book that has nine-point font, two columns, and narrow margins. And in the midst of all of that, God is kind 
to allow you to catch your breath and refocus your attention with just one saying or one statement. Well, let's keep going. First Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Now, Paul still hasn't arrived at the main thing he's going to say. If at first he labels it, now he describes it. He shows us the qualities of the statement he's about to make. And these qualities of trustworthy, deserving the full acceptance, they'll stick out to you more if you remember the context of this letter. Paul writes to his protege, a young pastor named Timothy. Paul has left Timothy in the Asia Minor city called Ephesus, which is in modern day Turkey. Ephesus plays a prominent role in the New Testament. You see, the message of the gospel has been proclaimed and believed in this city of Ephesus, but detractors from this gospel have now multiplied in this city. There are now teachers who claim to follow Jesus, but instead they emphasize their own wisdom. Teachers who talk more about what they do than what Christ has already done. So Timothy is a pastor in a place where people don't know what to believe anymore. Timothy's a pastor in a place where people no longer know what is acceptable. Paul penned this letter nearly two millennia ago, but the challenge hasn't gone away. Friend, right now, in your pocket or in your purse or maybe even in your hand, you have a handheld computer that you can use to access literally unlimited information. But with so much quality, a quantity at your disposal, you no longer know what is true quality. With so much quantity, you can, have, you can find ample information that already confirms what you already believe. You can remain insulated from what's actually true. So Paul's description of this saying, this is trustworthy. This deserves your full acceptance. This should be a weight off of your shoulders. He tells you, here is a statement you don't need a second guess. Here's a statement that you don't need to hold your breath, that you don't need to keep it at arm's length. This statement is trustworthy. You can fully accept it. Isn't God kind to cut through all of the noise and reassure you in this way that before we get to the actual statement, we are put at ease, but at the same time, before we get to the actual statement, we are also put on notice. If the statement Paul is about to make is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, then this means, friend, that you have to respond to this statement in some way. This, mean, this means this isn't something that's meant to pass through one ear and go out the other. This is a statement that's meant to be interacted with, grasped, received, and internalized. The saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world. No more buildup. We're in the main thing, but let's zoom in. Christ Jesus came into the world. Now, maybe Paul wants to keep us on our toes, and he says Christ Jesus instead of Jesus Christ, just to remind us that Christ isn't Jesus's last name. It's his title. He is the long-promised king. And Christ Jesus came into the world. 
That's an interesting way to put it. Paul could have just said Christ Jesus was born. But Paul is deliberate. If Christ Jesus came into the world, that means that Christ Jesus must have existed before he came into the world. And we're told that in other places. For example, in Philippians chapter 2, we're told that Christ existed being in the very nature of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we're told that Jesus was rich and for our sake, he became poor. In John chapter 17, Jesus himself prays to God the Father, reminiscing about the glory that he enjoyed with his Father before the world existed. Christ Jesus came into the world. My friend, here's what this means. Jesus isn't a man who became the Christ. He's the Christ who became a man. That's very important. This tips you off that we are dealing with something that's stunning. That one like this would come to a place like earth. That one who has equality with God took on human nature and became a man, even an infant. I love what theologian J.I. Packer writes about this. He says, God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than just lie there and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed, needing to be changed, needing to be taught how to talk like any other child. I mean, the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. This saying is trustworthy deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. To save sinners. Now here, let's be careful to define our terms. To save means to deliver or to rescue. And so the question becomes, well, to save or deliver from what? Well, the next word gives us a clue to save us from something to having to do with our sin. And this word sinners means someone who breaks and falls short of God's standards or God's commands. So consider the central act of Jesus. It's what we're remembering together this evening. It's the cross. On the cross, Jesus saves those who trust in him from God's right judgment of their sin. On the cross, Jesus saves those who trust in him from God's right judgment of their sin. Their sin is put on Jesus. Jesus's perfect life is put on them. This is why Jesus came into the world. This is his central purpose. The angels announced it. Matthew 1, 21, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus repeated his central purpose. Luke 19, verse 10, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. The church believed this central purpose. 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You see, what I think often happens is that people either minimize that the save part of that purpose or they minimize the, the sinner's part of that purpose. So instead of saying that Jesus came to save, 
people feel more comfortable saying that, well, Jesus came to teach us good morals. Instead of saying that Jesus came to save, people feel more comfortable saying Jesus came to give us a good example. Instead of he came to save, they they feel more comfortable saying, well, Jesus came to give us a boost, or even he came to make it possible for us to be saved. He came to help us help ourselves, to throw out the life preserver to drowning people. And instead of sinners, people feel more comfortable saying, well, Jesus came for well-intentioned but imperfect people. Or they feel more comfortable saying, Jesus came for those who are struggling and needed a hand. He came for those who are hurting and needed help. My friend, Jesus doesn't just come for struggling people or hurting people or drowning people. Jesus came for dead people. He came to save sinners. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our uh, transgressions and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. My friend, have you decisively trusted in that statement? Bank your whole life on this. You have no other hope to be saved from your sin besides Jesus and what he has done. And how can you know that? Well, I think that brings us to the very last part of 1 Timothy 1.15. Okay, we'll repeat the whole verse. The saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Now, before this verse, Paul has reminded Timothy about his life before he met Jesus and how Jesus showed him grace. Paul describes himself as a blasphemer, as a persecutor, and as an insolent opponent. One commentator on this passage puts it in his own words. Paul labels himself as a callous, self-righteous, bigoted murderer, hell-bent on full-scale inquisition of Christians. Paul's savior was his own high morality and his intense religiosity. So Paul has just been warning Timothy about all these false teachers in Ephesus. He tells Timothy, their message can't save people. You know who can save people? Jesus can, Timothy. And you know how you can know that? Look at me. I'm the worst one of the lot and he saved me. I love this last part of 1 Timothy 1.15. Paul's example reminds you, friend, that no matter how bad you think you are, you are not beyond saving. And Paul's example reminds you that no matter how good you think you are, you still need saving. Of whom I am the foremost. This last part of the verse shows you what's now true of Christians. My friend, do you trust and fully accept Jesus and not yourself as the one who saves you? Well, if you do, here's what should now be true of you. Like Paul, you should now think little of yourself and much of Jesus. That's how Christians think. 
You should sing with humble joy. Lines like these we'll sing in just a few minutes. No humble dress, no fervent prayer, no lifted hands, no tearful song, no recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong. My righteousness is Jesus's life. My debt was paid by Jesus's death. My weary load was borne by him and he alone can give me rest. My friend, do you trust and fully accept that Jesus is the one who saves you? and not yourself. Well, this very last part of verse 15 should tell you what should be now true of you. Now you should desire for others to have what you have. I mean, that's Paul's impulse here, isn't it? Isn't Paul saying, if Jesus saved me, oh, then he can save you. That's how all Christians think. My friend, if you've been saved by Jesus, your trust in Jesus might be personal, Oh, but it's too good to be private. Do you trust and fully accept Jesus as the one who saves you? Well, then this last part of verse 15, of whom I am the foremost, it tells you what should be now true of you. Now, my friend, there should be a change in you because saved sinners are changed sinners. Listen to what people said about Paul in Galatians 1, verse 23. They say, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. My friend, you can have that same story. It's the same story of John Newton. You might know him. John Newton used to be a slave trader, but Jesus saved him. And he ended up writing the most famous hymn, maybe the most famous song of all time, Amazing Grace. Listen to what John Newton said of his story. He says, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I'm not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. This saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you sought us when we were strangers, wandering from the fold of God. And you rescued us from danger and you interposed your precious blood. Lord, every day we are debtors to your great grace. We thank you, Lord that you came into the world to save sinners like us. We pray that you would save even some here this evening. You make yourself known to them. And Lord, help us to live all of our days with humble, grateful praise. It's in your beautiful name we pray, amen.